You're listening to How to Win Friends and Save the Republic, a podcast from the National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers. I'm your host, Andy Moore. My guest today is John Pudner. John grew up in Richmond, Virginia as the eldest of nine children in a very crowded three-bedroom house. He attended a conservative Catholic high school with a fellow alumni uh, named Steve Bannon, of whom you may have heard. John later attended Marquette University, where he received a bachelor's in political science and journalism. Now himself the father of nine children, John has built a successful political and business career spanning more than three decades based upon his skills in negotiating, diplomacy, and honestly getting things done on a shoestring budget. During his career, John has won three out of every four races in which he's been involved, including in 2014 when he was involved with Dave Bratt's campaign, who would ultimately unseat U.S. Majority Leader Eric Cantor in one of the most unprecedented upsets in political history. Later that same year, John also helped defeat a 32-year incumbent state senator in his home state of Alabama uh, in the general election. John's, I guess, now famous strategy of outsmarting rather than outspending the opposition was born out of his hobby of extrapolating statistical data on sports teams. He's like the money ball of politics, I guess, is is really how you could describe him. He's known as one of the go-to guys for helping upstart candidates who may not have the financial backing necessary to attract support from maybe the parties or other larger players in the political sphere. But through all of his successes, John has seen firsthand the role and the influence of money in politics, how it can manipulate the system, take advantage of loopholes that did not favor a transparent election, and one in which that only select major corporate donors and union bosses were often the true winners. With a desire to now reform the system rather than circumventing it, John now leads a team of fellow ex-political wonks at an organization called Take Back Our Republic, and they seek to change the very industry in which they all thrived. I'm excited to have him here today with us. Welcome to the program, John Pudner. Oh, thanks for having me. We're, we're very excited to talk to you, and, and in a future episode, we'll have uh, one of your colleagues, Francis Johnson. We're excited to kind of have a, a back-to-back duo of, of you guys in subsequent episodes. Now, John, I want to start with, um, as we do with all of our guests, your childhood and how you come to this work. I understand that I think your first job was as a, a paper boy, a, a newspaper delivery boy there in your hometown of Richmond. And from what I read, your your paper route included a pretty diverse group of residents. It was like your family's house, the Catholic church where you attended school, a Jewish synagogue where your family voted, uh, the center of Richmond's gay community, and the first block of, of a predominantly African-American neighborhood. That's one heck of a paper route. <laughs> what, tell us a little bit about how that helped kind of shaped your understanding of the world and, and, and maybe um, if it did, uh, presented the, the beginnings of your political future. Uh, yeah, that to, to 12 years old, be delivering newspapers to that, that group and, and got up to 550 customers at one point and just talking to people. And uh, 
then a, a friend of ours, a close friend, ran for state senate, friend of the family, and they said, oh, do you want to knock on doors? And I'm still 12. I've already hit my paper out. And so I delivered 800 letters from my dad on why they should vote for this guy. So, <laughs> so I've knocked on doors in eight states since then. Uh, I do like to stress the X uh, political in your info. I have realized recently some people think I still run campaigns. I do not. I, I've dedicated myself to the reform effort. So just want to make sure everyone understands that. But but it was just a grassroots, you know, it's it's interesting with the divide right now in the country and people not talking to each other. You know, just from a data perspective, the leading indicator that you're a Democrat is how many people live in the density around you and obviously vice versa. So if you knew nothing about race, ethnicity, anything else, you could plot most voters based on that. And obviously I'm an exception to the rule there because we were in packed row houses, very packed in our house's case. And yeah, it just came out a real conservative and for whatever reason, uh, but always feeling like it was great dialogue with other people. Never, never feeling like there were evil people in some other part of the country who were out to get me because I was living amidst a lot of people who disagreed with me completely. And you know, we all got along. That's that's funny. That's an interesting uh, a point, because I think often we. I say we as in Americans, right? We we think in terms, probably too often, of this binary, us versus them. But when you ask people, like, who are the them, it's not the people in their neighborhood. It's not even often the ones in their state. It's the other that is faceless, that is nameless, that they're afraid of. But when you get the chance to to meet your neighbors and to talk to them, you often find out you have more in common than you think. Absolutely. And and there is a country, rural, you know, city, rural thing. You know, there are other divisions. Uh, you know, the, a lot of Thomas Jefferson fans celebrating the streets when that New Yorker Alexander Hamilton was shot and killed. You know, that was that was celebrated in rural America at the time. So this isn't something new. Uh, but, yeah, just to, to have the interactions and break it down and people talking to each other and and you know, everyone, of course, the easy target now is social media. And that's true. There are just things that get going on social media, but it could be a tool that could really help too. I mean, what we're doing right now or other things. So uh, just like you know, a lot of times been wasted TV and, and made people, you know, overweight and often sitting around with too much TV, but it's such an educational tool. So we have to we have to look at the upside too and not get too down and realize maybe we can start to establish some of maybe just talking to people more freely and everyone learning to Zoom and Google Meet last year, you know, maybe that's a silver lining that we start to break some barriers and talk to people who don't live right by us and think right by us. That's right. Well, and I think it's interesting, you know, using, uh, as we are right now, some kind of virtual conference, right? Well, you get to, not only do you see the person with whom you're meeting, but you get a, a little view into their life, right? So I can see like the basketball jersey on the wall behind you. You can see my vote banner and some of my bookcase behind me. And I, so I think it gives us a little bit of a glimpse into our friends, our family, our colleagues' lives that we might not have if we were just meeting at a coffee shop or even at an office. Yeah. And just the other little things, uh, how many of us now have seen a pet or a child run across the lap of someone who's in a meeting with us, which, you know, I'm sure two years ago before COVID, oh my God, is this person just not professional? But now it's commonplace. So yeah, to give that feel, I mean, there are people who like pets or people who like kids or people who don't want either, you know, want to avoid them all, but little things like that just shape, you know, our priorities in life. That's right. Well, and we realize that we're all humans, right? That we all have, even, even, um, there's a, a classic video from CNN or one of the big news stations of, of the guy where his daughter came in 
through the door behind him and he was having a very important, you know, nationally broadcast interview. And all of a sudden a toddler comes in and her little walker and his wife comes in to, to yank the kid out and he maintains composure and keeps going. But you realize, um, we're all fighting a, a, a difficult battle and whatever it is. And we're all, we're all in this together. Absolutely. So John, growing up, you mentioned your family friend that was running for state Senate. Was was politics important to your parents? Was it something that was discussed openly in your home? They did. Uh, my dad was a contrarian, so he was very conservative through the 60s and even as a college professor. And as soon as yeah, I worked on Bush 2000, we won, dad had turned complete left wing. Like, so I just told dad, dad you just hate whoever's in power, you know, we funny <laughs> conversations. But but he would go to Republican conventions, you know, the, the state ones, Uh uh, old elections back then, you know, the John Warners and people like that from Virginia. And, uh, you know, it was real conservative. And our, our church was very conservative, too. It was kind of traditional Catholic Benedictines, you know. So um, so that came out. But, yeah, we liked it. And I just, uh, the first impression on TV, even the year before the state Senate uh, friend race, was just Reagan's convention speech in 76. I wanted Reagan to beat Ford. So I, I didn't know how it all worked, but I'm an 11-year-old watching it like a sports game. And uh, so got into it both kind of on the airways at the same time. We had a very local race. Just really neat. 11 and 12 year old have, have both happened. Yeah, that's funny. I was about that age when uh, when Ross Perot ran, and I also had no awareness of politics. But this guy was entertaining in a way the yes. other two guys weren't. And so as a as a child, you're like, well, he's got this little stick he waves around. <laughs> Tell me more about this guy. What's the deal? Uh, so that's funny. Well, uh, so you went to college and obviously decided to – pursue a course of study that was related. It was in political science um, and journalism. And, and I think, gosh, I mean, of, of two subject matters to be entangled then and now, um, those are, you know, aside from uh, politics and money, I think politics and journalism is the other one that, that fit hand in glove. Uh, tell us a little bit about what prompted you to choose that as your major. What, what drove you towards that, that course of study? Yeah, I had this. I, I love journalism. I mean, I still do, still write all I can. But um, so I really went into journalism and added poli sci. I was going to be a minor. And uh, Marquette had a top 10 journalism school in the country. So that was a big draw. Uh, a couple influential people there yeah, that just run into us in life. A Gail Perlick, who was a Wall Street Journal uh, reporter who's still there, was teaching, just taught me detail. <laughs> uh, and then George Reedy, who was really the first modern press secretary, it was Linda Johnson's press secretary. I tried to, as a smart 18 year old, take a shot at him on some questioning class. And by the time he had sliced and diced me, I realized these guys who've handled the national press are way beyond <laughs> where my 18 year old smug smart self is, uh, or thinking I'm smart. Reedy took me under his wing. He said, I'm taking one Republican and one Democrat, and I'm mentoring them for four years. So that's just one of those moments in life. How do you handle the national press? How do you run a campaign? Because he'd done both, so he's the perfect combo. And his notes on how to run a campaign and how you have to build an army first of people who are really fired up before you talk about swing voters. I mean, the stuff he typed I ran political campaigns for over a decade, still using his notes from those four years. I mean, even though he was 80 at the time, just one of those you know, treasures. So uh, so that was it. I, I My plan was go Marines because everyone in Virginia who ran for office was a former Marine. Yeah, they, I think the joke is uh, what are there? 
four things that you always know within 10 minutes with someone. One's a Marine, a Harvard grad, a vegan, and I think there's one other one. So, <laughs> so I was going to be a Marine, uh, do 10 years of journalism in politics, and Marines canceled my class. So I came out, grabbed a journalism job, and then George Allen was a young upcoming candidate, son of the coach in the town where I'd gone to work at the newspaper. So my journalism career was actually six months. My Marine career was zero. <laughs> and suddenly I was running political campaigns. I was a 23 year old. It just kept winning. We had no money and, and just that grassroots. It was so nice because you know, we were the party out of power. The Republicans had less than a third and just to figure out, okay, we're going to be outspent $200,000 to 40,000 back then, you know, how do we win and how do you do grassroots? And if you're in a rural area, where do you meet people? Where are the events? Where's the hardware store? Where are the gathering spots? So my whole campaign came from that perspective, not kind of from how do I do polling and media buys? I mean, I didn't run any polls on this early campaign. We had no money for a poll. You know, we had to go with gut and talk with people. So I'm just glad I came through politics that way because it gave me, I think, what, I think the election process can be if it's working right. Sure. I, you know, I, uh, one of my hobbies is woodworking. And I, when I was in college, I had a roommate who was a, a talented trim carpenter, couldn't manage his money to save his life. But he was taught me a lot about just how to use hand tools. And I, you know, when, when I'm stressed or things are, are difficult, I'm often out in my garage doing the same thing, using hand tools. And, I, you know, the adage is you can build all the same furniture uh, with hand tools as you can with power tools. Power tools might make it faster and easier, but they don't necessarily make it more precise, right? You can just make mistakes faster and more expensively. And I think that is, is probably true with politics too, right? You can do polling, you can, you can use, you know, cutting edge data. And, and there's a, a point, a purpose to that that's very useful but also, you know, there's there's no replacement for just talking to as many people as you can, um, because if you talk to enough folks face to face, you've done a really in-depth quantitative and qualitative assessment of, of voter sentiment. Uh, you so have. And this is even now with partners in our nonpartisan work. This always seems to be a reoccurring little disagreement. The perception so much is you don't do any grassroots until you've gotten your message down behind the scenes. And to them, I just sometimes have to say, look, I ran a call center, polling center for over 10 years. My polls were very accurate. Ran focus groups, number of states, accurate. But if you saw the mess that goes into getting to your polling sample or getting your focus groups, you'd realize submerging yourself in the community and having people who really are with no agenda going, I want to hear what people are saying. And yes, of course, you're not filling all your boxes like you would in polling. Did I get the 27 year old guy and the 58 year old woman and everything else? But, um, but if you're going in open mind and realizing those things like, okay, well, I just talked to a bunch of people agreed with this, but they were all 25 year old guys hanging out. You know, okay. That's, that's one segment, you know, so you can, you said the quantitative versus qualitative. So I always like submerging first in the community before I ran a poll or focus group. I think it's people first, and then you can hone it with that instrument and find out, okay, exactly. I can tell this thing's fired people up and door to whatever. Let's measure precisely where we go. And then you get into your, yeah, your, your more precise measurements. Yeah. So you're, you started out doing journalism and, and kind of backed into politics. Now I, a big part of your career has been 
based around data, right? And, and as, as I joked early on, the, the money ball side of politics, how did you get interested in data? Was that from journalism, like from a data journalism perspective, or was it really looking for tools to help you in the political sphere? Yeah, so I uh, I always wanted to crunch. Now, I mean, I, I invent my little baseball game when I was ten years old. Percentages on baseball cards. So I always it was really a, a sports interest. And then got New York Post was publishing uh, my rating of baseball pitchers, like the early analytics. They had Bill James one week and me the other week. And obviously, James did much better, you know, as far as that field because he became the legend. Got like a friend of mine who was the quarterback for Alabama sitting at the table with Tom Brady before a bowl game and said, what happened? You know, Tom took off, but, but so I always liked the numbers, but as I got into campaigns, it was when you're short on money, you don't want to send mail to every person. You've got other uh, people who will never consider you, the people who would never vote for you. And you started building really what was kind of micro-targeting before that was a term. And they were like, wow, why does your mail only cost half of what theirs does? It's like, well, they're people I don't want to remind to vote or it's not worth the effort or so the data. And I also, I have such a value in volunteers time. If you want volunteers to hit doors, I just figured early on, you've got to do the data work first. Don't let them waste their time. Make sure they're working off a good list. And you can do a lot of this quickly now, you know, just automatically. But at the time, it really took work because you were printing out sheets. And sometimes they'd say, why did I skip those houses? I'm like, look, they're against us. You know, we've, that, you know, what for whatever reason, just go to them and you're calling first. And so just understanding the data. So um, I really was lucky when Fox News did the interview after Canter. You know, she, she Gretchen started by saying, do you mind if I call you Mr. Moneyball for this interview? So that was probably the <laughs> easiest interview in history when they start on that note. But did get some accolades and I've kept doing some sports stuff. That's my release. You go to the workshop. I, I run my sports numbers, you know, for fun. And uh, but, yeah, I just always thought if you combine data with grassroots, you have the two most important things to build on. Yeah. Well, and so we've kind of talked around this, but coming at this from a perspective of, of someone who got involved and didn't have a lot of money, who had to find the smarter ways to do politics, eventually you came to see the role of money in politics not as uh, not necessarily as a, as a necessary force, but it's a force that was enabling sometimes for the wrong reasons. Um, tell us a little bit about that, and then if you want to go ahead and make the jump to how you arrived um, where you are today with Take Back Our Republic. Yeah, I uh, said it was just you know, out of necessity that we figured out these other ways to do things without money. And the nice thing was, yeah, I just liked having some small donors, but no one big and a small budget because I felt like the people I was electing didn't know anyone anything. Now, you know, once they get down there, you never know what happens. You start going to the lobbyist things and it can change, but at least to go in without just feeling like, oh my gosh, this one entity bankrolled me and now I'm going in as their legislator. Yeah, I felt like it, it made it people. And I like coming out of the convention system in, in Virginia because you actually had to go county by county and win a nomination. You know, it wasn't even a primary. Now there are downsides, obviously, to conventions. But nonetheless, it, you were at least having to talk to people. But that's what led to the jump. When I finally went back, I'd mainly done state legislative takeover. So Virginia, Georgia, Alabama, three states I lived in. You know, we took it over for Republicans in each one. And then uh, then went back to the Eric Cantor race. Um, I just thought he'd lost touch with his district. You know, he was on the national fundraising circuit, which, you know, both sides have people who do that. He was a great fundraiser. Uh, but I kept talking to people. I was back in my home district, and I, I just found this professor, Dave Bratt, <laughs> convinced him to run, a college professor. Uh, 
He wasn't sure one day he calls, well, if you can flip back over to the house um, and convince my wife, I'll do it. And I said, sure, I can't be there for eight hours. I didn't tell him that was because I was back in Alabama and I had to drive to Virginia. So, uh, but coming out of that win and just seeing kind of the $5 million, the political industrial complex and how it was just, it was just the polling and TV for Canner and us doing 200 people knocking on doors and, and very targeted little digital with a small digit uh, with a small budget. You know, we pulled it off and went said, well, this proves you don't need money to win. I said, you know, we really had a perfect storm, perfect candidate, perfect spouse, people fed up. I knew the district well. I had so much data from past conventions of the district. I said, this really is uphill to beat money now. And that's when I got um, a call from Mark McKinnon, who I'll say an old friend, but I didn't know him at the time. He'd done TV for Bush 2000 when I was doing field, doing his faith-based turnout nationally and uh, just was intrigued by the race and, we started talking about should we form a group, a nonpartisan group, to just see if we can de-emphasize money. And, and that was it. Um, it started as just money in politics, but, you know, kind of a civil discourse. Forget the specific issues, but is there some way we can get to a process that incents candidates to kind of run for the right reasons? No matter what you your view on any particular issue, at least get to a setup where we've got you know, functioning government again, and just more responsive to people. So that's been the goal and decided to hang it up, do take back our Republic. I'd like to say the altruistic versus altruistic. Um, I'd like, you know, I had a bunch of people say, well, how could you quit politics on time? And here you are for 25 years, biggest win, you know, your first ever national, always be in the scenes. But, but to be honest, I got like all these phone calls after that race saying, Hey, you're the guy who can win races with no money. Well, I'm a candidate and I have no money. Can you work for me? And that's a terrible business model. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I wasn't sure that would actually work long term for me as the no money guy. But it, it was a great move. I've loved nonpartisan. Politics is a grind. You know, it's about to turn 50. And to really just be able to stay around it and around the system and still go to my RNC meetings and things. But but not with a focus on candidates or particular race has been a great change for me. Sure. Well, there's something to be said for for still doing the type of work you love, but doing it in a way that you can sleep better at night, right? Like, and feel like you are, I feel like your legacy is that you were trying to make the system more fair, more representative for for all voters, right? So I uh, take back has, I think, five issues listed on the website as, as the issues that you all care about. Um, three of those are money related, right? Dark money, campaign finance, and foreign contributions. Can you tell us about how each of those and how they're related? Yeah, the uh, and I'd say the foreign donations are the biggest concern because those have to be secret because they're illegal. So you almost got a double <laughs> there. It's dark money, but I just think so many ways have been set up to move foreign money in. And my gosh, with this terrible week we've had, without getting into the politics of it, but obviously with Afghanistan and you know, the, the families hearing about, you know, their soldiers today or yesterday, um, you know, anything that has the potential that policy is being adjusted based on foreign interest is just so scary to me. And again, not to say you have to use any elected official, but obviously no one wanted what happened this week, but just, you know, were policies, you know, really focused on what's best for the country? I don't care what side of the political spectrum you're on. And is there money coming in from overseas? And that's why when we see something, it seems like an opening for China or someplace to move money in. It's, look, I'm happy for China to argue their case over here for a different trade deal or whatever. But 
I'm, I'm not up for if their money's going in to help elect who wins. <laughs> and whether or not that person knows, they may know it, or it could be a foreign entity just deciding this candidate's much better for my interests. So I'm not um, charging complicity, illegal complicity or anything. But we have laws against foreign donations. And yet I just feel like once you set up the dark money, and you can run everything through LLCs as opposed to a PAC that has to report or, you know, one of our pet peeves on the left is the way Act Blue runs money or, you know, these are all ways that we think make it easy to put foreign money into races. So I just put that at the top of the list. Um, you know, there it gets a lot trickier with dark money because there are retribution issues. So if you're talking about American given you know, they're concerned about retribution, those are a lot tougher. There are two sides of that issue, but the foreign money is the thing that we have to hit. Yeah. So my understanding of the way that that foreign money arrives on our shores, right, and gets involved in the process is that what you said, they they funnel it through shell companies or to um, organizations that don't have to disclose their donors. And then those organizations are the ones that uh, that make the buys or donate to candidates if they're allowed or however it happens. Right. That's right. And, and I'll give an example. I, I always told people if I had to trade, you know, limits on spending versus keeping it secret, <laughs> I'd rather have it disclosed. And, um, you know, for some for some, they disagree. I think there are you know, half dozen or more states like Virginia and Alabama that have worked in who have no limits. But it is full disclosure now. There's no more hiding and moving it around. And I just remember that first boss, George Allen, I wasn't working with him still, but he's running for governor and Smithfield Foods had given him money and a lot of liberal groups attacked him and said, yeah, cause they were polluters. And ironically they charged him with polluting the Pagan river. I'll never remember. It was just the funny thing that this river they were talking about, you know, having me called the Pagan river, which, you know, I guess religion and politics got, got everyone. And um, so they ended up having a press conference and there were, there was talk that Allen might return this check from Smithfield Foods. And, um, and uh, he had a press conference at which he, he took announced he'd gotten another check from them. <laughs> and so whether or not you thought Smithfield Foods should be giving money or not, it was an issue. And it, I just felt like it was a fair issue. I mean, I liked Smithfield Foods. I thought they <laughs> did good work. There were people on the left who didn't just consider them a polluter. But it was a campaign issue. You could then vote on that. And, and that's why I just think if, if there's disclosure, you know, I just want to know what you're voting on, you know, what might be influencing you. And if that's all up front, great. But if it's money in the back door, you know, you don't know why decisions are being made. I just think you're losing your representative government. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back after a word from some of our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by IVN.us an open news platform for independent-minded authors and readers. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe to IVN.us where you listen to podcasts. On SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, or iHeartRadio. Hey, Unregit listeners. I'm Emily Corsetti from The Purple Principle. How did our country get so polarized? The rise of television news, the rise of social media, every single force is pushing us apart. How do we get less partisan? People have a lot more in common than they think they do on policy. And can independent-minded Americans bridge the divide? I think that there's value to having folks like me outside of the parties. Take a 360-degree tour of partisanship with The Purple Principle, wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, and now back to the show. 
uh, one of the other issues that take back uh, champions is anti-gerrymandering, right? So um, trying to do away with the process where, you know, boundaries of a voting district are manipulated in order to benefit one party or the other. Uh, knowing that you've been involved in in Virginia some, which I think for the last couple of years has been a an excellent case study and a demonstration project and how gerrymandering is not a partisan issue. It is a power issue, right? Where at some point in the, in the last five years, um, both parties have been in power and for at least part of the time opposed anti-gerrymandering efforts because they realized, oh, wait, you know, we have some power here. Once it slipped away and the other side got it, suddenly their positions flipped. Um, tell me a little bit about where Take Back comes down on this and uh, the type of change you guys would like to see. Sure. Uh, we like nonpartisan commissions as long as you do them right. Now, they have been manipulated at times. So, you know, that's a longer discussion. Um, and, and to your point on <laughs> people changing sides on this, at, at, in 2010, after the North Carolina legislator flip, you actually had a moment at which a year or two later, more than two thirds of all legislators had co-sponsored nonpartisan commissions. Of course, all of the Republicans had done it right up until they won. They then all <laughs> dropped off and all the Democrats got on board. And that's why Virginia was such poetic justice. And we didn't play any part in a the referendum there. You know, we, we did talk a little legislation or meeting people. But uh, one of my old clients, Emmett Hanger, who I elected to the state Senate for the first time, championed it for years as a Republican. It started to get momentum. We went into session. Suddenly the Democrats won. And there was just soul searching on would it still pass and would people stick with their vote? And it was a fight, you know, to the credit of the ones who stayed on board. It was no longer the Democrats' interest. And, and some of them bailed for that reason, but others didn't. Others did, you know, stick it out and voted. And so now you've got fair districts in Virginia. You've got the state that's gone from had gotten pretty red, has gotten pretty blue. I'll, I'll say purplish, because they've got a, you know, probably an interesting race this year. It could go either way, perhaps. But but, you know, we, uh, if the Democrats had come in and gone from hard Republican districts to hard Democrat, of course, it would have been a huge swing. Now it's going to be a competitive House race this year. And, you know, I don't know, I guess Democrats win, but I don't know. Virginia is contrarian like my dad. Usually <laughs> they like to go opposite the presidential winner from the year before. So I think Virginia is a great example of it happening. We did help in both the Ohio and Michigan redistricting. And let me say, I'm all for compromise. Michigan was an all out. My Republican friends were mad at me for backing it. I mean, didn't want it. Ohio, though, we managed to help get in and work out a compromise, which I really like. Some people say it didn't go far enough, but it, it had some power sharing. And you know, you go into all the details, but we would always like it to be less partisan, whether that's moving to Ohio or whether it's all the way to Michigan. Where, and, and the key on that, though, that nonpartisan commissions, you have to have legitimately independent people. One problem liberals make is they think of professors as independent minded and Republicans do not. So when they start saying we have three professors on this, no offense to my academic friends, I, I think it almost has it has to be a jury selection, which I think Michigan did a little where both sides can object, both can kick them off. And let's get to a real body that's not political and let them just draw lines. Everyone think gets the basic. They say, can't you just do the state on a grid and forget it? Well, you can't because of population distribution, but that's the idea. And it's tough around cities. You know, you, when you start to get the weeds, you can always say contiguous counties. Yeah, there's it gets complicated. We get to suburbs and cities and how you divide them up. But but just at least to have nonpartisan people looking at it. And the reason that ties to the overall message is if you have districts that are completely secure for one party, like most are now, then your whole body 
battles in the primary. I mean, the generals are irrelevant. And that's why we think you need nonpartisan to get the rest of the voters back interested or yeah. making a difference. And, and so that then I think dovetails right into your support of instant runoff voting, right? Or some, a, a model that is, um, deals with the fact that elections are so often decided in the primary. Yes. Yes. Uh, and, and the reason I love instant runoff was all the Republican conventions I ran. Yeah. So I ran 21 candidate convention, ran or it was a major part, I'll say 21 Republican convention nominations where there was no primary. The winner was whoever won the convention, as I mentioned for grassroots all. Well, those really were instant runoffs. I mean, it took a, it took a day, but you'd have nine candidates and they'd go there and you'd vote and start eliminating the bottom one. And you came up with a consensus candidate. I think in only a third of them was the first place winner on the first ballot, uh, the eventual winner, because it's the slash and burn attacking everyone else. Get to my 35 percent and the others divide up 65 percent. All these people have attacked. The other 65 percent hate you. <laughs> you have a nominee hated by 65 percent. And it just changes. It incents candidate behavior to go. I would see it in those. I've got to be everyone's second choice. I mean, that was always my key. Even if I had a candidate who was getting in too late, was not going to be first say, hey, your whole model is every time you're told, sorry, Jen's my best friend. Great. I love Jen, too. Can I be your second choice? And no one will say no the second time. Oh, well, actually, Mike's also my best friend. You know, they, so there's a strategy. But more importantly, there's a consensus. And if you're going to be a flamethrower, you kill yourself in any kind of instant runoff system. So there are a number of variations on how you do instant runoff. But just as the basic model, arriving at a consensus candidate, I just think so much better. And by the way, that does not mean the most the uh, most middle of the road candidate necessarily. I know you and I have talked on this, but I just keep going back to those 14 million, whoever it was, Bernie Sanders voted, voters who voted for Trump. You know, you can say far right, far left. To them, it was more important. They saw someone who wasn't a political insider. So I think some reformers make a mistake of saying, oh, we can get some middle of the road candidates. A lot of people don't like the mushy middle. It doesn't have to be bad. It just has to be a consensus candidate. Yeah. And it, it allows, I think this is why a number of our of nanner members, right, or involved in instant runoff or ranked choice or whatever you want to call it, that that it allows for better representation, right? You get a better participation, you get that consensus, and as you said, it changes the incentives that may be driving the candidates. And so, you know, kind of what I hear from you, John, is that Take Back Our Republic is really interested in changing the incentives. If we change how money flows in and around politics, if we change how the you know, how the lines are drawn, right? And and so who the how people are elected, who their constituents are, and if we change the the voting process, these three big structural changes could change the incentives behind our political system, which I you know, my gut says that's the the thing that a lot of that a lot of voters bump on is that we don't like the incentives we, we are suspicious or uh, incensed on what we perceive to be the incentives uh, of politics today. Absolutely. And I think that incentive word is so important. I just think political reform does carry some connotations. And don't get me wrong, most people use that form and you know, they mean it the right way. But, uh, but I think that um, just to say political incentives, political innovation. I mean, those are those are some key words, I think, to use to really set aside what we're doing. You know, it's about how candidates work. 
uh, run. It's not about who wins a given race, uh, even though we talk about some ramifications for that. And that's why when we first came out talking, we talked about the political industrial complex that built around. That was kind of in our launch. And then, you know, Catherine Gale has a great book that kind of walks at the same thing, how this political industry is built up. And and so I think that that terminology is is so key. Um, we want to incent the right behavior during campaigns, I mentioned, but also after, <laughs> you know, once they're in elected office. Because as I said, as I think it was Reagan who said, you know, they start they talk about the swamp and they get here and they decide it's a sauna, you know. So we need to keep them incented once they're elected to keep, you know, being responsive to citizens. That's right. One of my uh, one of my good friends from college worked for Senator Marco Rubio um, when he when he ran for Senate when he was elected in down in Florida the first time, and we had lunch um, shortly after the election. And I said, "What do you, you know, what do you say to a candidate?" And and you know, my friend had worked in Texas politics for a long time, but I said, "You know, what do you tell a candidate like this the day after the uh, the election?" And he said, "As soon as the results are in, and it's called." I pull him aside and I look him in the eye and I say, remember that you now represent everybody in your district, right? The ones who voted for you and the ones who voted for the other guy. Don't forget that. Go celebrate tonight. But remember, tomorrow you are everyone's senator, ag commissioner, whatever. Uh, and that, you know, that's it's been 10 to 12 years since then. And I think about that whenever I think about an elected official and I I wish as a voter, right? Just as a, as a voter, I wish that that sentiment was carried through more. And I wonder how much of that is, is directly tied to those incentives that, that people in the, the, the ruling class will say, um, how they perceive their, their role as, as politicians. Absolutely. No, I, I think that's it. Uh, what do you come out of and look at how partisan, you know, races get how, not partisan, it's the wrong word, how within within primaries, how vicious races are getting. So uh, not not partisan. But yeah, we just it starts there and goes straight through the general and you know, just got a problem we've got to fix. Yeah. John, uh, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for taking the time. This is great. My guest today has been John Pudner, executive director of Take Back Our Republic. You can learn more about their organization at takeback.org. <laughs> Thanks for listening to How to Win Friends and Save the Republic. This podcast is produced by the National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers. For more information about our organization and how you can join, visit nonpartisanreformers.org. 